Understanding when athletes are tired or inefficient can open, give us a better view into what are the, what are the natural behaviors of movement, of exertion, and what are the injury risks at the end of the day. Because every time when somebody's inefficient or fatigued, their muscle distribution and exertion patterns are changing. And to what extent are they changing can dictate a lot to what extent athletes can maintain their health and prevent injuries. And at Strive, you know, we don't predict injuries. Uh, we don't necessarily prevent them. I don't believe in those terms, to be honest with you. But what we allow athletes to do is manage the injury risks. Welcome to the Driving Force Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Chase Rosa, a former private equity analyst, now exploring human performance through podcasting, coaching, jujitsu, and endurance athletics. In this podcast, I'll be unraveling the stories of high performers across sports, business, and wellness. By presenting their stories, uncensored and uncut, I hope to inspire you to take a step back, look within, and evaluate your path and journey. Today's guest is Nikola Mervalievich. Nikola is the co-founder and CEO of Strive, a human performance company. Strive enables clothing with technology to capture performance insights to empower real-time decision-making. By outfitting an athlete's clothing with their technology, it allows coaches and trainers to compare body input to body output and provides insights on muscle activity, including load, symmetry, and fatigue. So, as an example, as athletes near the end of a hard practice, coaches will be able to see through Strive if certain individuals are beginning to favor one side of the body versus another, or if certain muscles are exerting excessive amounts of load. The inspiration to start Strive started many years before Nicola officially founded the company. As a pro basketball player in Montenegro, he often asked himself why his coaches were having the team do these workouts that would leave them overly fatigued. If only there could be a way to help coaches understand how their players are feeling. Hence the beginning of the idea for Strive. In this interview, we get into Nicola's time growing up in Montenegro, his pro basketball career, and all things Strive. And so, without further ado, my interview with Nikola Mervalievich. Nikola, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Love being here. Chase, thanks for having me, man. So maybe for this one, we can just start off at the beginning. Uh, do I have it right that you grew up in Montenegro? Yes. Uh, born and raised, was there for a good 17 years, and then uh, won a green card, on, green card on the lottery and moved to U.S. with my family, which was kind of out of nowhere, but here we are. Yeah. How does that work? Like, Is it really hard to get a green card through the lottery? I mean, it sounds like lottery just like by chance that you would get it. it's literally yeah exactly yeah <laughs> I mean, it literally was that uh one of those things that uh i don't think we took seriously really in my family like my dad who was very organized he he applied for it and then nobody mentioned that thing and all of a sudden we get a yellow envelope one day um, from a u.s embassy and you're not even mentally prepared about this possibility of living in the U.S. You're just kind of like, ah, let's try, whatever. And then when it became real, it, we had to accelerate the process of uh, acclimating ourselves to the idea of moving to a different continent. So it was a fun process. You know, obviously, it's a, um, it, was, it was a great experience. And, yeah. And what was it like just generally to grow up in Montenegro? For people that you don't know, don't know the country, like, uh, like what is the culture like and you know, where is it in the world and so on? 
Yeah, absolutely. So Montenegro is actually was part of Yugoslavia. So, you know, Balkan Peninsula, uh, western side of uh, Balkan Peninsula, next to right next to Croatia, Serbia. So uh, growing up was it was different, man. Like um, it was uh, it was a Mediterranean life. You know, time, time moves at a different pace there. Um, obviously, tourism is a big part of the economy. So, you know, a lot of places to go out. It's really easy to travel because it so small and it was um it was a little bit more relaxing mm -hmm. obviously look at that uh, with the grain of salt through a lens of a child you know i i left when i was 17 so i never experienced uh, as an adult with the challenges that come every day with the the way the economy was structured but for me it was definitely a, a little more freedom to you know to explore to do things to move around and um, obviously a different pace of life in many ways yeah Still, nonetheless i recommend to everyone they should visit it at some point yeah yeah not so much of that i guess go 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 mentality no yeah. man no yeah uh, <laughs> you know you go out at night at 11 p.m you come back home at 4 or 5 a.m uh you wake up at 11 a.m that was uh that was normal that was uh it was part of life so <laughs> one extended summer to a certain extent <laughs> During the work week too? No, again, as, <laughs> yeah. as a kid, but no, it's, uh, yeah, it, right. obviously um, Montenegro and that whole region went through, you know, 90s were tough, even early 2000s were tough economically. So, you know, you're talking with uh, with the system and society that that been through a lot and to a certain extent burnt out and that creates a little bit uh, less of an urgency right for better or worse yeah unfortunately yeah interesting um and doing some just some reading on the country before for the interview um is it true that water polo is the most popular sport over there oh, is that dude, accurate they're awesome Sharks. yeah yeah they are <laughs> actually water polo and european handball uh, okay. those are the two sports that we pride ourselves on uh and Montenegro teams are, are generally, they used to be really freaking good, like back in the days, like 90s and 2000s. Water polo right now, I would say, is probably the most famous sport kind of outside of Montenegro. Uh, inside, of course, basketball, I mean, basketball, handball, soccer, and water polo. Those are the four main sports. Uh, yeah, when I moved here, I didn't know about American football or baseball or lacrosse. You know, I had to, <laughs> right. I had to learn all this. <laughs> Yeah. sports on the fly when i came here which has been fun yeah did you play any water polo when you were there no no i didn't i swam a lot i loved water but uh i didn't i i grew up in a town that was very well known for handball so european handball you know a lot of famous players in kind of in the in that whole region of yugoslavia came from from my town and it's a very small small town i mean twenty-five thousand people but there was something in the water, you know, everybody was six, 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 seven, and really good at playing handball. Water polo was more on a coastal, like coastal towns. They had water polo teams. So right. um, I have some family members that played it, but I never, um, I never did anything organized. For me, it was fun during the summer to uh, throw ball around and shoot a little bit. Right. So uh, handball on the other hand, yes, I was a, I was a very big fan. And I started yeah. actually, that was my first sport. Okay. 
Interesting. Um, but you mentioned basketball a bit, yeah. and you ended up playing pro or semi-pro basketball in Montenegro? Exactly. So the way that we're structured, the, the way that sports are structured there, you don't have a, you know, you don't have a school teams, you don't have university teams, like each city has a team. And then it's, uh, it's kind of um, uh, almost like a farm system. And people start getting paid when they're 16. You know, so you can imagine, like when I moved to US and started educating myself a little bit about the whole concept of the NCAA and everything and i was always like why aren't people not getting paid this is like <laughs> this is sports but there we used to get paid you know when you're 16 you you're dedicated to it you play um you play for a year round like our off season was two weeks at most so it was a very you know, it was a very different system but yeah i started playing handball and uh you know, I was really in love with handball until I realized that a lot of my good friends played basketball. And that's literally my friends convinced me to switch to play basketball. And that's how that's how the story started, essentially, with basketball. You know, I wish there was a more noble cause of like passion from the young age, but it was no, purely yeah. uh, peer pressure. <laughs> <laughs> OK. Uh, how tall are you? Six, five. OK. okay yeah. So, yeah. Pretty tall. So, <laughs> yeah, I grew I grew up really fast. I was yeah. like six two in eighth grade, so my coaches wow. <laughs> thought I was gonna be this like seven foot monster. Center, they worked yeah. with me so much. Now imagine their disappointment, kind of <laughs> when I started capping. All these other kids are starting to grow, be taller than me. So it was, um, you know, it, it was beneficial in early days. Now I'm sure it's uh, from their perspective, the opportunity cost was <laughs> misplaced. <laughs> right. Yeah, and uh, like when you first started playing basketball like seriously did like did you think that being a basketball player was what you want to do like for a career like make a living out of it initially oh very much so yeah i mean when you're you know to come back to the point it's uh it's something that um i, I always thought of, thought about seriously you know there was no point in my life where i was like oh i'm just gonna stop playing you know, um, I'm sure my parents at the time would, could have a different argument for like, oh, no, he always wanted to go to college or something. But for me, that was just I really enjoyed it. Um, I found it to be my place to, you know, people don't bother me. I'm with I was luckily I was really good friends with pretty much everyone on my team. So that created kind of community that was really hard to see a different route in life. And, you know, some of my friends went on to play you know, professionally kind of develop their career. Some of them quit, obviously, but um, it was something that's very much on the table for me, uh, kind of from early teens as, a, you know, I can do something with this. Right. And so how long did you end up playing for? Oh, uh, that's a good question. Uh, probably like, I mean, all up at so it's like seven years. Okay. So, um, six six seven years yeah it was, it was it was really fun it was uh we were uh you know it was it was a great experience in many ways for me so i benefited very much from a personal and developmental developmental perspective so i'm very thankful for that yeah and um what position did you play uh three four five four five usually Okay. Um, yeah, I, I was a defensive guy, you know, I grew yeah. up, um, my favorite players were back in the day, Ron Artest or, uh, okay. Matt Artest right now and Dennis Rodman. So 
Right. I used to be obsessed with defending, um, locking people down. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it wasn't the most, it wasn't the sexiest thing <laughs> <laughs> in basketball. But yeah, um, I grew up playing four or five, but defending small guys too. Just, uh, you know, can you lock somebody down to like four or five points per game? That was, or less. That was my goal. That was your game. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Do, you, do you play until you move to the U.S. pretty much? Yeah. Yeah. Until I drop things off like four days before I left or three, three or four days. I met my coach. I was like, hey, I mean, I, he knew kind of from earlier, but I it was really hard. I, I kind of once I stopped playing basketball, I think something changed in my brain and I just never. Yeah, I very much missed it. It was really hard. I didn't realize how hard it was kind of when, especially kind of for the next two, three years as I moved to US and the concept of the family and community. And, you know, it was it was very much a three, four hours a day, six days a week, 50 weeks a year. Yeah. You know, that was a good part of my life. And when I stopped playing, that was, uh, it was challenging. So I tried to squeeze it until the pretty much <laughs> yeah a few days before i moved to us yeah it's a full-time job yeah it is yeah it's uh um, you know yeah. a lot of there were quite few people on my team you know they didn't go to high school that was their life they played basketball they got paid they moved and we were it was a very competitive environment um from the coaching staff down to players so you know you did you had to take it seriously mm-hmm. it wasn't just like oh uh let me be on the sports team. It was more, it was a commitment, full commitment. Right. And you mentioned earlier, like how thankful you were about the opportunity to do that. Like what were some of the biggest takeaways from playing you know, pro basketball and basketball at that level for, for all those years? Discipline. I think discipline and commitment. Um, again, it was, uh, it was very, it was an environment where, you know, if I'm not good, they, they bring somebody from a different city, you know, uh, and, you know, when you have a team, when you have cities like we played, um, you, you have uh, 150 kids trying for the same team. So you, you kind of had to be dedicated. And I think what that created to a certain extent for me is just like, OK, I'm doing this. I'm fully committed. There was it was kind of hard to half as the process. And, right. you know, I'll just kind of slide my way through um it required you to be uh, uh very committed very dedicated and at the end of the day very disciplined you know that did cost a lot of you know that the child the my teenage years were not um it was a little bit harder to be reckless just because you know you are training so much you are spending time at a gym at a facility a lot so uh, it created a uh, a fun uh structured environment you know, some people might not like that, but I very much enjoyed the, the process and I very much enjoyed knowing that like, hey, this is part of me and this is what I'm doing, you know. The, the less decisions to make, the easier it becomes. Yeah. Sure, it serves you well as an entrepreneur now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah very much. Discipline. I mean, it's... Uh, yeah. Exactly. And and growing up there, you know, it's uh, the concept of... The whole concept of like training was this is kind of our coaches perceived for some of us that actually used to go to school it wasn't like oh you're going to school i understand you have homework you know it was very much like 
this is your life and this is your commitment. And it kind of taught me to manage expectations and manage my time relatively well. Um, I, I think that was one of the key things that I had to develop because otherwise you can't, you, you know, you can't survive just based on time and commitment, just, just time on a time basis. By the time you get the facility practice, you come back home in the summer, twice in the summer, in a, during kind of the rest of the, in the off season, during the rest of the year, once for four hours, you, you're used losing, you know, at least four or five hours a day on a regular basis. And then over close to 10 hours during the summer and off season. Right. Right. So. And would you say that some of the, I guess, seeds were sown for strive during, or during those, those days? <laughs> The, the concept of load management in nine is that's what I was always like, we, we train so much. And then in the summer, they would take us in the mountain to train at a much higher altitude. Okay. Just so we can get lungs, you know, um, developed properly. And to me, it was always fascinating. The whole concept of intrinsically, you know, I didn't have the knowledge. I just knew that at some point, you know, recovery has to matter. And, um, you know, when you train so much, you wear out your body, you wear down your body pretty rapidly. And, you know, injuries were just part of the game, not just for me, but for everybody. And I was always fascinated. Like I, and I tell people this all the time is that I wish coach understands how we feel right now. And there was always like our coaching uh, staff, you know, they were very strict. They were very like, you know, we used to be in an environment where like, if you make a mistake, coach comes and like kicks a kicks ball at you or like pushes you around. It was like a very physical environment. It's uh, like, so it was really hard to be like, oh, I'm tired. You know, you can't say I'm tired, but I was always fascinated by this idea. Like, how can we communicate our physical state right now? To coaches in the proper way so obviously that wasn't strife at the time but that was very much like there has to be a way recovery should matter and you know that was my thinking like back in 90s so um that's kind of what oh it was always on my mind to a certain extent of how can we do this effectively right right interesting it was more more so intuitive at that time yeah it's just like you know when you're when you're running up the mountain hill at you know six thousand feet altitude for three hours every day it, it becomes a little bit challenging after a while you know you want to kind of create a, you know you always wish you can create the discussion back and forth but at a time you know we to a certain extent it was ran like a military you know there's no like consideration it was like this is what you got to do you know shut the f up and do it if you can't do it somebody there's another guy who will do it and it was a very it was a to a certain extent of a very ruthless environment but it was weird because you know we all liked it in a certain in a certain way so i, I guess it worked but now as a as an adult kind of reflecting more on it it's uh, it's definitely different than what most people do today right yeah i'm it sounds like you wouldn't dare ask why you're doing a certain exercise. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I only developed that as a, when I left Montenegro. Right. <laughs> so. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah, it was just different. Yeah. Yeah. 
So when you when you moved to the U.S. was was I'm guessing that was your first time ever being in the U.S. was when you moved. Yeah, man. I like didn't speak much language. Um, came to came to Ohio and uh, spent spent not even a year there, and then moved to East Coast. But yeah, that was my first time. You know, I growing up, I idolized you know uh, NBA players. Listened to a lot of rap music, so for me, it was there was a lot of excitement about it. You know, but um, landed in Detroit at. 10:24 p.m. on May 8, 2003, and I still remember landing and being like, "Oh shit, I'm here," <laughs> you know. And so, yeah, <laughs> this is a this is a different airport than what I just left. So, um, yeah, it was the first time. I just I knew it from TV. That's all. Yeah. Wow. And so, what, what was that transition like for you? Like... <sighs> Um, I tried to play a good part um, at a time, you know, I, my parents didn't speak, didn't speak English. I, I have a younger brother. Uh, I was kind of the only one speaking English and figuring things out. But, you know, you think you try to play cool, be like, oh, this is this is easy. But and, you know, we figure life out. Obviously, we got on our feet and, you know, my parents found a job and um, I went back to school and all of that. But looking in retrospect, I think about two, three years when we moved here are very blurry. Um, there's not much recollection uh, just from, I think, being overwhelmed for, with like new culture, new language, new people, new lifestyle, new priorities. Like to me, the craziest thing was that I lived, we lived about a mile from YMCA and we would walk every day because it's just a mile in, like growing up in Montenegro, you walk everywhere. My okay. facility was about a mile and a half, almost two miles. And I walked it about 300, you know, 95%. Those 5% is when it's literally like either I'm not going or it's raining so bad that I need a ride because I'm, I'm late. So when I moved to Ohio, you know, just realizing that you don't walk, you drive places. That was a, <laughs> Things as small as that made a lot of impact. And and yeah, it was tough. You know, I think we figured things out. But for me, in retrospect, if I was going to be honest and objective, I think it's, um, I wish time moved a little bit slower because it feels like just there's one blur of like <laughs> three years. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. Was there anything else culturally that, culturally that really surprised you about the U.S. or anything that was especially tough to adjust to? Parents coming to watch kids in, a, in games, uh, parents' involvement, that was that was shocking for me because growing up in Montenegro, you know, that's, uh, you know, parents are not as involved, nearly as involved uh, in any way, shape or form. But when I moved here and it's like just the involvement and rooting and talking to a coach and those things, I think that <laughs> oh, was really, yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> that was just, my parents came to a, my first game, even though I played in, in Europe, they came to my first game, like when I moved here. So just from that perspective, and I, I mean, Chase, when I say everything, everything from the from the the way people communicate to priorities in life to like education, like everything was completely different, and that it was trippy on some days. <laughs> you know, what are we right. doing? But um, I I think it's a uh, you know, 
you're not moving from one state to another state, you're moving to a different continent. So um, I always knew there were going to be surprises, but I didn't know there's going to be this many. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, uh, that's funny. That's funny that you mentioned that. Um, I'm just picturing like you were like 14 years old going to basketball practice, just leaving the house and not your parents staying there or, or got at their job. And then you walk back. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. At 12, 13, you walk like close to two miles to the, to the facility, like a mile and a half to the facility. You have a practice, you walk back home at night at like 1130 <laughs> and that that's it. Like, uh, like we had one kid whose dad used to bring him off into the, to the, facility and we we thought it was so weird like why is he not walking like why is he why is he driving like so it's just like small things like that it's you don't realize them as a as a part of your life until you don't see them anymore right yeah because that's because that would be unheard of to do in the u.s yeah exactly so but yeah yeah that's interesting yeah i like Um, to believe that um with my kids, I'll be a little more <laughs> uh, collaborating, but yeah, we'll see. Yeah. So, yeah. Where do you go to college in the U.S.? You went to URI? University of Rhode Island, yeah. Okay. I was around, uh, went there, and uh, then moved to Seattle for to to UW. But yes, went to, went to University of Rhode Island. Okay. What made you decide to go there? Um, I think it was a, it was a really good... Uh, it was a good program, biomedical engineering program. Um, it was, um, my parents moved, they got jobs in Rhode Island. So I just want to be close to my family. You know, the concept of, uh, I still, even, even in college, I, I couldn't process the concept of living far away from my family. I just, I needed to be close. So it just, it made sense. And given the size of Rhode Island, it was really easy to commute anywhere. And, right. uh, I wanted to study biomedical engineering, kind of human performance. And back in early 2000, there were really not many programs, not many schools that offered it. As a matter of fact, there was like a handful of schools that offered, that offered um, honest to God biomedical engineering program. So that also okay. helped me kind of filter down the filter down the options. Conveniently, you or I had it, so um, it was an easy decision. Right. And was 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 Strive and or building something similar to Strive always in the back of your your mind while you're at URI? Sketched out in 2006 on a piece okay. of paper. I actually wrote a document too, and um, yeah, it was something that I started doing the research in muscle computer interface kind of electromyography. And you know, once I built a prototype, I went to this conference, uh, presented my presented my research, and on my way back, I said, you know. Like I always complained that I wish coaches knew what I was doing. This is it. Um, I was always very fascinated about muscles as a part of human performance. Uh, and so to me, this made a lot of sense. Uh, intuitively, it's, this is it. Muscles move the body. This is what we need to measure. So in 2005, I started building little prototypes. In 2006, I'm sorry. I started building little prototypes you know, just does it work? Figuring out the filtering, kind of the signal processing of um, muscle signal. So, yeah, it was uh, it was on my mind. It came back to my mind accidentally uh, back then, and kind of was 
in my head ever since. As a matter of fact, like until I started Strive, uh, everything was catered towards Strive to a certain extent. Okay. Interesting. And so yeah. now maybe, maybe walk me through like graduation and then like some of the, the jobs that you held and companies you worked for up until you start Strive. It's like a brief kind of run rundown. Yeah. So while I was in, yeah, I think what was really cool is that um, my my professor at time in college, uh, Dr. Ingson, um, he was uh, he was extremely supportive and he was one of the most critical people in kind of cultivating this passion for for research. And Dr. Ingson, he found uh, he found actually a biomedical engineering program at University of Rhode Island. And he just he gave me a free range. He's like, go for it. I'll support you. Let's let's do something fun. And um, after college, I we I kind of worked out a deal with him. It's like, hey, let's let's do masters while at it. You know, I I was I was a late bloomer academically. I think first two years of my college were I not not awesome in any way, shape, or form. Um, the kind of starting my junior year, uh, I got more serious and uh, spent time very much dedicated to the academia and research. I graduated, uh, got my master's, and then moved to Seattle. Um, essentially applied for a PhD program at the University of Washington here uh, in uh, electrical engineering kind of neuroscience. And that helped me move to Seattle, kind of inspired me to move to Seattle. But that was a very short-lived dream. Uh, realized then the PhD was not, not something that um, I really wanted to pursue just uh, I didn't have it in me um, and then ended up uh, going figuring out that like hey I'm going to be focusing on human performance I need to work at a medical device company I need to get familiar with how to build products and to me there are okay. kind of essentially three things that you need to that I wanted to learn one is build products two is manage portfolios and three is um, be focused on innovation and kind of how the business runs and um, I got a job at a company called Fluke, which is an industrial company, uh, industrial and medical device company in, in Seattle. It's, it's actually ever outside of Seattle. But what was awesome about that place is that they were develop, developing medical devices um, testers, so for test and measurement. And essentially, it gave me opportunity to kind of work on both medical devices and also, you know, understand the FDA process, et cetera. So started working there as, a, as an engineer. From engineering, I, I was very much always fascinated about innovation. Started coming up with the ideas, you know, like, oh, we should design this, we should design that, even as a, a kind of as entry level engineer. And at a time, my manager, uh, who was a director of R&D and engineering, he said, you know, there's a job that actually where you can come up with the ideas a lot and just kind of validate your ideas. So from there, I moved into another division, kind of in a bigger division of the company where I worked as a product innovation manager and what that allowed me to do essentially is look at the market look at the gaps in in the offerings and then you know come up with ideas and solutions that would help uh, plug those gaps the reason why i took that position is that after i spent two and a half three years as an engineer i wanted to understand right now okay how do you manage portfolio how do you develop a product and this experience allowed me to actually be front and center on defining the product, working with the engineering team, working with the marketing team, working with the sales team, you know, getting an executive team, getting everyone to buy into this vision 
and then right. you kind of hand it over for development and then i work on the new idea and then after that position i kind of moved more into like a you know traditional product management uh, life cycle management of the product and finally before i left was uh, you know assisting with mergers and acquisitions work of sourcing um, sourcing companies to acquire and was in a really awesome team you know where i got a chance to learn a lot about you know how do you think about company growth and you know what what are the opportunities what are the things to look for and i think all of that kind of gave me a to a certain extent a holistic overview of you know how do you come up with the idea how do you develop a product and then how do you manage that product after so um there was always part of me that was like oh i don't need any of this i can let me just let me just quit start a company i'll figure it out on the fly but um I think there was part of me that was craving a, a format where I can play um, and essentially uh, Fluke, the company where I work, gave me that opportunity to kind of try different things and experiment and learn. And um, I was there, I was, I was with them kind of in a different divisions between the time I quit school and until I um, started Strife back in 2016. So okay. it was, it was, it was, it was a, it was a great experience. It was definitely a benefit of smaller company. It's 5,000 people, relatively speaking, smaller company, but you, you get to do more versus, you know, working at a big company where you can do a lot. So I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And and you didn't quit school. Um, you, you graduated though, right? Say again? You didn't, you didn't quit school. You said when you quit school um, between... It yeah, I just I realized the PhD was uh, oh, that's I was just not okay. cut for it after I moved here and okay. uh, started a little bit and then I just was not uh, I didn't have it in me. I ended up getting an MBA later, but um, right, I don't talk much about an MBA. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> why? Oh, it's just um, <laughs> there, there's a joke here at, at the office, but it's. Um, uh, it's 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 a great program. I don't think you necessarily need an MBA to start a company or something. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. I ended up getting an MBA, and then, which was supposed to accelerate my growth in in my other company, but ended up leaving the company. So um, it was a good experience. I got great friends, and uh, it was a good time. Right. Okay. Got it. Cool. So maybe now um, we can just focus uh, solely on Strive. Uh, so maybe just to start yeah. with that, like provide a quick overview of Strive, how it stands today for the people listening. Yeah, absolutely. So um, uh, Strive deli delivers the only platform uh, proven to optimize muscle performance for elite athletes and teams. And uh, we have our, through our own proprietary algorithms and sensors that seamlessly integrate into any compression clothing, uh, we provide kind of a complete actionable data for athletes to always compete at their peak performance. And we do this by essentially integrating our sensors into um, existing compression clothing. And athletes wear this compression clothing. And from there, we can understand where, what, what are the opportunities for improvement from a muscular perspective, effort perspective, and how is fatigue or inefficiency affecting athletes' performance. So that comes back to what I was saying earlier. Understanding when athletes are tired or inefficient can open give us a better view into what are the what are the natural behaviors of movement of exertion and what are the injury risks at the end of the day because 
Every time when somebody's in efficient or fatigue, their muscle distribution and exertion patterns are changing. And to what extent are they changing can dictate a lot to what extent athletes can maintain their health and prevent injuries. And at Strive, you know, we don't predict injuries. Uh, we don't necessarily prevent them. I don't believe in those terms, to be honest with you. But what we allow athletes to do is manage the injury risks. Because if we know that your this leg is working way harder than this leg and your right hamstring is literally carrying your posterior chain, your right hamstring might be at risk of burnout, strain, or something else. So that's what we want to provide athletes and coaches in real time and historically. Right. Yeah. And you can, you can see like as a, as an athlete fatigues you know, on the quarter on the field, like they'll start favoring one side or the other, like, like you were 100%. mentioning. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't tell you, like looking at the data, I can't tell you how many people do not have a um, proper posterior chain specifically glute and as you, as you might know, glute is very correlated. Glute activation is very correlated to lower back. It's very correlated to ankle balance. So our, our job and our mission is to help people train more effectively and adjust their training to strengthen their um, strengthen the output and kind of create a more sound foundation for, for movement. Right. And um, what, what is, what is uh, posterior chain? Is that what you said? I'm sorry. Yeah, posterior chain. When we talk about those, those are the back muscles. So okay. those are hamstrings and glutes. Uh, anterior is quads. Got it. So like you see a lot of people with weak posterior chains, essentially. Correct. Yeah, a lot of people. And you know, as a nation, we have a massive problem with you know a lot of lot of ankle injuries, a lot of hip injuries, a lot of lower back pain, and a lot of that is. Uh, even like when I go to gym in the morning and I see and I look at people, you know, squatting and the way that they move there's just not a there's a deep prioritization of proper um training for back muscles like uh glutes and hamstrings mm -hmm. i think it's really important and should be should be addressed more often yeah yeah interesting um maybe go into the technology a bit more for people like yeah how does it work and like what exactly is it measuring to, to improve athlete performance Absolutely. So the way the way we function is that, <clears throat> excuse me, we essentially take these sensors, they're like a sticker, a fancy sticker, and then we attach them to existing compression clothing. So we work with athletes, whether we work with the professional athletes who are different, uh, who's, who are signed by different brands, you know, Adidas, Nike, Under Armour, or whether we're working with different schools where, you know, there's a Nike school, there's an Under Armour school we can we essentially upgrade their clothing and we make their you know pants shorts you know three-quarter lengths you know we we upgrade them same color you know same fit it's just now we can collect data from there we collect um, motion data through a, um, a kind of accelerometer so we can understand their load their exertion jump height acceleration decelerations etc but then we correlate that with the muscle load analysis. And uh, when I say muscle analysis, I mean monitoring surface EMG. So we're essentially focusing on understanding what is the effort, what is the exertion of the muscle. If you can correlate, if we can understand the exertion of the muscle and what type of the movement, now we can start getting a holistic picture of your training and your efficiency. As research shows, you know, the, the more efficient you are, the more the the less exertion you you need to require your muscle 
to achieve something we can see how that changes during the practice you know maybe at the end of the, at the beginning of the practice you you come in tired you know you spike up you start exerting your muscles a lot just to do a simple small you know like sprints or direction changes etc but then once you like warm up and once you get in a groove of things you know your muscle performance drops and you become a little more efficient so that efficiency and longitudinal analysis of the muscle data is what we provide and okay. our focus are muscles you know like yeah. we see the value in kind of what companies like catapult um connects on stat sports what they bring from a positional analysis and we we look at it from a kind of internal load analysis and to us muscles are in my opinion the key to unlocking the internal load efforts in a uh, in parallel efforts with heart rate monitoring okay and this may seem like i guess a generic question but your these compression shorts even with the sensors in them are machine washable right like you yes. throw them in, okay it would be very awkward otherwise yeah yes <laughs> <laughs> that was a that was a uh, that was one of the requirements of course yeah yeah maybe like walk us or walk me through like an example use case of strive so say like a coach and their team is at like a football practice like how would that coach be utilizing strive say before during and after the practice yeah so i you, you know typically we see we see kind of two two methods of usage one is the live data one is the historical data uh, we see a lot of coaches who get excited about live data. It's like, oh, I want to be able to pull my athlete in real time when the things are happening. And I, I always I always look at that as in like, yes, that's an ideal scenario, but you want, you're want you going to be coaching. You know, a lot of coaches get lost. Like they bring their phone or they bring their iPad or they bring their laptop with them, but then they start coaching. They forget to look at the data. So the way most, most teams utilize Strive today is, you know, they were players wear shorts during the practice and then after the practice the data automatically gets uploaded to the cloud and the, the reports get created from there the coaches can essentially understand the load and what this load can show them is that you know if one day your muscle load is you know let's say 400 and then the next day you have a very similar player load or external load effort but then your muscle load is you know 900 that means that the next day you worked noticeably harder or you than you did the day before. So we can start tracking day over day. How is your exertion changing? How are your muscles responding? I, you know, one of the funniest use cases, anecdotes that we have is college athletes on Monday morning after the weekend of drinking. Their <laughs> muscle load is through the roof right off the bat. <laughs> it almost doesn't fail. Yeah. So these are the these are kind of the information that we've seen so far, and um, kind of a lot of it is on a team perspective. But given that we can then monitor our muscles in real time, you know, through um, higher hertz analysis, you know, 24, 32 hertz, some coaches are also utilizing it in a weight room. Like, hey, let's let's get you in a squat rack, or let's do an RDL or something like that. Let's do a control movement and see, especially post injury, or even somebody who's at the risk for injury you can start understanding, you know, isometric training, you know, how, how, how are things comparing to each other? So those are kind of the main two models. One is the, you know, team analysis, complementing essentially the catapult or Kinexan or stat sports into saying like, hey, yes, we understand this is your player load, which is awesome, but this is your muscle load exertion. Essentially adds color 
to the to the practice. On the back end, uh, for individual analysis in the weight room, that's just kind of one on one. If coach wants to work with a player or players, it allows them to really understand what's going on in real time. Interesting. That's funny. The example you gave with the the drinking, um, the the coaches could probably use use that to like identify like why this player on like Friday mornings is their muscle load is just so much higher than the others. It's like, Hey, are you like drinking the night before? Like what's, yeah, <laughs> you know, absolutely. And I'm very, I'm very fascinated right now. One of the things that I've been kind of very curious about is the whole concept of, you know, with sleep monitoring with whoop mm-hmm. and aura today. Um, I'm always kind of curious, like muscles, you know, muscles are a little bit more complicated because, you know, it depends how it depends on, you know, what you ate, did you stretch, did you warm up? So there are a little few more variables in kind of how they perform, but I'm always fascinated, like what would be, what would be a correlation between, you know, the, the alcohol intake slash sleep slash right. muscle output. And, uh, you know, th- there's so many research and ideas and opportunities that are extremely fascinating to me. Uh, right. Too many shiny objects. <laughs> Yeah. 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 Do you like foresee potentially integrating with like a whoop or an aura in the future? I like everyone. My, mm-hmm. our mission is strive is, you know, to be a human performance solution focused on muscle and to become the muscle company. And as such, I see muscles as a complementary metric to heart rate, complementary metric to GPS, complementary metric to sleep, I know complementary metrics to VO2 max, uh, oxygen levels, you know, like, you know, we can, we can look at our data in the context of everybody else. You know, a lot of investors ask us, who are your competitors? And, you know, to us, we actually, we like a lot of people, if not most people uh, and most companies, because muscles are just an, a metric of the exertion, which when you put it with something else, it can all usually create a better scenario, you know, where one plus one equals three, because we have a complementary data set. Right. Right. Interesting. So what is, what, what's the business model for Strive? Like, is it like subscription? Do you have some services, et cetera? Absolutely. So it's a subscription model, excuse me. It's a essentially annual license, Uh, teams buy annual license and they get multiple pairs of shorts and they just renew it next year. Uh, Okay. The concept of hardware becomes, or selling, you know, selling shorts and et cetera, becomes hard because then people think like, oh, what if I need two pairs or three pairs? Uh, the licensing model allows us to allow easier cognitive processing of, you know, what the, what the price is, adoption and, and everything. So we've seen it work nicer uh, in a field. Right. And those are with like the the Nikes and the Adidas and the Under Armors. Exactly. So the way the way it works usually is that teams send us their clothing. Uh, you know, like we have teams who, you know, they have they have compression shorts, their special specific color for their school. They send us what they have. We just upgrade it. Um, we can also provide Strive clothing, Strive branded clothing, compression clothing uh, as an option. But um, a lot of teams like the luxury of integrating it within their own clothing. So. It improves the comfort, the look and feel, and athletes want to look good, you know? So giving them a, a gray shorts and a maroon or yellow or something jersey, you know, it's not it's not the most pleasing visual. <laughs> right, right, yeah. And, um, but, you know, sports teams, 
they aren't your only target market, right? No. So we work with sports teams, uh, U.S., Europe, uh, college, of course, and then military. So we work with military, um, uh, Army, uh, Air Force. So we see military, military and sports uh, correlate a lot in kind of how they train and preparation, especially when you start talking about the you know, special forces, their training and specifically in the Army and also the Air Force. So we see that as a complementary solution, essentially, you know, and you see a lot of these coaches moving between the tactical space and the sports space. So right. the training methods carry throughout. And that's kind of what the, that adjacency of those two markets or solutions allow us to play between both sides. And we also started doing now work with um, industrial companies. Mm-hmm. So industrial market is something that's, that's very interesting that to be honest with you, if you asked me like three years ago, I would have laughed about it. But now it's actually with the new, you know, we're trying to manufacture the, at a faster pace. We're trying to be more productive, reduce number of injuries and decrease insurance costs. So we see opportunity also in the industrial market that we're addressing right now. So living in that B2B world uh, for now. Right. Right. And so that like an example that might be like construction workers, for example, potentially. Correct. So think of it this way: when you have, whenever you have a, whenever you have a knowledgeable uh, personnel for a uh, trained tasks in a manufacturing facility, you know, it's it's easy to look at somebody who's executing a task that's fairly easy to replace. But when you talk to somebody who you you know you have to train and you have to make sure they understand the process and the the how the operations work, etc., you don't want that person to be injured or just leave. You can't just Oh, perfect. Let's just hire an ex-person. So for facilities like that who really prioritize the efficiency, effectiveness of their existing personnel, to them it becomes a very much a value uh, proposition is that, hey, let's make sure that this person is available and contributing. And and to be honest with you, what we've seen from kind of our research so far in interviews and kind of working with these companies is that even the, the workers are also starting to be more like, because, hey, I'm not injured. I'm not in pain. Perfect. Um, makes them actually, um, in a, put, puts them in a better position too. So it's not just like, oh, this company is pushing this down. It's also um, uh, personnel starting to be more interested in like, hey, let's make sure that you know if we don't, if we can prevent an injury or we can be more conscious of injury is uh, let's do it. And, and to us, it's a lot about education, you know. Uh, as a CEO of human performance company that's based on data, I, I'd like to tell you that, you know, oh, everybody, you know, you can't do anything unless you have, you know, devices and products, but a biggest push always is education. And education happens to be easier once you have the data to communicate something. But at the end of the right. day, these 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 people are, are, are very much interested. Mm-hmm. So that's been fascinating and interesting and something that, you know, we're kind of, changing on the go so yeah yeah that is interesting and they know the benefit for the military personnel you know is pretty huge too like yeah with the, that's the, the cost yeah, that's of a, a fatigued, <laughs> sol- uh, yeah, a fatigued soldier on our, the battlefield yeah 100 percent. our our uh men and women in the uniform you know we're i mean we're extremely grateful for what they do and it's been honestly it's been an honor to work with some of these units who put their life on the line every day. And for me as a, as somebody who, you know, 
I moved to this country because, you know, you grew up in Montenegro, you dream of this, you know, you know, life in America and what the U.S. represents and, you know, to be here now and participating, having this uh, relationship with the DOD and uh, military units is, is, is just crazy, man. And, you know, their life, it's life or death uh, for them. And we take it very much for granted. You know, for us, it's, uh, oh, I don't want to, I don't want my right quad to be a little achy or, you know, something like that. For them, it's, uh, are you, are you mission ready? And right. the, the, the stakes are noticeably higher. And it very much reflects how they approach the training and the discipline. And I mean, I love working with them. Uh, not to say that I'm not excited about, you know, sports and um, industrial uh personnel but uh, working with the working with the military units and operators is just it's a it's kind of you know life-changing experience in many ways yeah yeah for sure and so so for now you offer upgraded compression shorts like i'm guessing in the future we'll be looking at like compression like sort of like rash guards out out guess right coming down the line at some point the the roadmap is pretty healthy. We're actually addressing some of the roadmap and we, we, we have some of the cool things in the pipeline that they're going to change how people train and prepare. And, um, so we're, we're very excited about it. But yes, I mean, shorts is a shorts is one thing and not just shorts, but the getting a muscle data. Mm-hmm. Um, there can be a whole ecosystem of uh, value that we can provide through um, some few additional metrics and et cetera. So we're, we're very excited. Yes, but yeah. you're right. It's uh, bodies, human body is very complicated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. you can go as deep as you want and you will still find insights and uh, solutions and things that are, um, that can be uncovered. Yeah. Sounds like in three to five years or so might have it just these strive cyborgs walking around in the fields (laughs) (laughs) i mean this is how i look at it you know to me human performance it's almost like an onion you know we started like a first layer we started with gps slash pedometers you know movement like how many steps did you make i mean that's what you know catapult essentially build this industry for us and i'm very grateful for what they did over the last you know 12 15 years we then started thinking about you know polar introduced the heart rate you know a very a very strong solution so you go from this like out you know outcome metrics of the gps and load to start thinking about it internal metrics which is heart rate to me muscle is the next layer so muscle is the next level of internal load. Like, hey, let's see how the body's moving. Let's see the efficiency. Let's try to understand what are the injury risks, where are the weaknesses. Um, I tell people, show me, show me a fatigued athlete. I show you, I will show you who they truly are. Because when we're fatigued, that's when we fall into our habits, into what we're, what's a normal movement. And I think past muscle, past muscle, you know, we start looking into. A lot of things like uh, blood analysis and hormone analysis and sweat analysis, and I think those are all extremely valuable and valid metrics. I just think the operation, making them operational into everyday, comfortable manner. I think that's the next step. And you know, I'm I'm not here to say like, hey, once we get a really good easy sweat analysis, then we're done with everything else. No, I mean GPS 
GPS is still around because it really does matter. I think as we start moving down the, as we start moving down the kind of roadmap of human performance innovation, we will become more and more chemical in a way of what insights can we drive from, you know, a very, very quick blood analysis. And I think, I think technology is not there yet and that's fine, but I'm very kind of as a, because of my biomedical engineering education and passion for sports and bettering athletes and operators, I think that it's very, it's fascinating. I think in three to five years we'll have, yes, we will have Strive Cyborg, <laughs> but I think there'll be a lot of other cool metrics that we'll be able to understand and analyze. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's exciting. Um, yeah. Maybe but right now, Strive is the solution for, for this. For, so. Yeah, for muscles. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Um, and so maybe just shifting gears here a little with, with strive, um, what's it been like to raise money for the company? It, you know, it's not like it's another email marketing software company where there's tons of, you know, VC firms with experience investing in those types of companies, you know, strive is very specialized. So like, what's it been like on that yeah. front? It's been tough. I mean, definitely, um, in, in this market is, um, you know, I had an investor one once asked me, you know, what's the difference between this and Fitbit? And I looked him in the face and he repeated the question. And, you know, the, my issue um, is there are a lot of investors who, um, who like playing investors because they, are, they make enough money as, a, as managers at, at these large companies. And, you know, they start thinking like, especially in the angel investment community. Um, right. It's, it's very ineff ineffective. I think as you move kind of in a, in a VC world, I think, I mean, you know, you have people who get it. You have people who see the vision and who are passionate and you have people who understand that, you know, it's a timing. I think the recent changes in the fitness market, you know, from what Peloton is doing, Lululemon, Carbon, uh, Tonal, I know they have been awesome for the, for kind of bringing the attention to fitness and, health market. So I would say, you know, three, four years ago, the climate was much different than today, where now a lot of investors are educated, they understand the data. I think, you know, companies there in this uh, data accumulation analysis world are helping us. And I, I see it, I'm, I'm, I'm very optimistic, you know, it hasn't been always been easy. I think it's, it's almost a little bit counterintuitive. But as you as you keep moving to with the more um, established investor, the discussion investors discussions almost become easier um, to a certain extent. So it's exciting. I think it's yeah. uh, there's a lot of excitement out there. Obviously, as I said, um, the opportunities for for that Peloton and others are creating are are affecting also how teams are thinking of uh, human performance and fitness and overall. So um, good and bad, you know. You have yeah. bad apples and you have, you have good apples. So, Yeah, but it's certainly moving in the direction of more and more investors are I, dedicating I resources say, to companies in this space. Yeah, Correct. You know, you, you have some, some great, you know, sports investment, sports tech investors that, you know, they're known in the field, but now you have more and more investors who are like, hey, I, you know, I like wearing my aura ring or I like running with my Garmin and this is really fascinating to me. I, I can see how next level of data can make me even better. So 
because of adoption of consumer products right now, I think just the presence of companies like, you know, Polar, Garmin, Whoop, Aura, and people getting familiar with those products are helping us also, who are not necessarily working with consumer, but are bringing uh, similar values. So right. uh, I'm an optimist um, by nature to the core for better or worse, but I, I genuinely do believe that even the data and kind of recent discussions we've been having show that things are getting a little more exciting. So that's good. Yeah. Yeah. What's been the impact of COVID on the business and like, how have you had to adjust? <laughs> um, I mean, listen, Chase, I think it's, uh, well, you know, on our team, we've been lucky that, you know, we stayed healthy and, uh, for most parts, the families of people uh, who've been working here. But I think overall, it's been really tough. I mean, if you told me early last year that we, it's not just that we're going to survive COVID, but kind of thrive on the back end, I, I would have had very difficult time believing, even as an optimist, as I said earlier. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, sports just got shut down. Yeah. I mean, you had, you know, we had purchases who were like, hey, the technology budget is now for salaries. And we had people backing out of opportunities. Uh, so, and obviously, you know, I'm not upset. This is, this was a, a surreal environment for us. Um, I think because we were working with military already that allowed us to, to go through, but from a sports perspective, it was really tough. I think we only, only right now, I literally last week was my first team visit kind of on site since February of 2020. Wow. <laughs> and even that was, you know, like masks, uh, distancing, test, you know, vaccination, all of that stuff. So, mm -hmm. you know, I think, I think we're still a few months away from kind of going back to the uninterrupted operational uh, flow, but um, it's getting better. But it was definitely not just for me, but for a lot of businesses. I spoke to some other CEOs in this market, and it, it was tough. Mm -hmm. Like everybody, a lot of people struggled. Yeah. Like yeah. if sports was your only solution and only option, uh, it was a very tough year for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I can imagine. Cool. And then uh, just what's your ultimate vision for Strive? Really to understand the exertion and injury risks from an operational perspective, from a functional perspective, it's to introduce these metrics into daily lives of people. You're wearing that shirt right now. We should be able to, we should be able to pull the data, um, data for you that can help you train better, be more effective. I think for us, um, I always tell people, you know, we're a, we're a data company cause you know, we're, we're very much focused on the algorithms and and uh, science behind it, but the type of innovation that we've done on a hardware front, we're also setting up an infrastructure for, you know, we want to add different metrics very rapidly, very quickly, we can do that. So uh, in 2015, you know, Kevin Plank and even Nike, you know, both of them were saying like, hey, we see this future in which a person just wears a pants and shirt and I, they can just efficiently get the data. And I think we align with that vision very much. Uh, and I'm very optimistic on where we are right now, given I believe we can bring that that vision into um, near rather 
than distant future. Mm -hmm. So integration in daily lives uh, is, is how we see it. Yeah. Yeah. I think with that, I guess probably, you know, thinking maybe too far ahead here, but when, when that becomes the case, like I'm sure there'll have to be discussions around um, sort of educating people on kind of their relationship to this data that they're getting and not being like too addicted and constantly looking at what their heart rate is or what their muscle exer exertion is and just being too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, I think strive, you know, we have the most intuitive, uh, strongest data set when it comes to muscles and we want to be seen as uh, the muscle company. Um, but from that perspective, how we carry that into the, into the public, into the rest of the world is by providing insights and providing education. To my point earlier about, you know, data is awesome, but unless you can educate and make customers really understand what the next steps are, it's, it's cool for, you know, you, myself and us to look at the, you know, bunch of graphs and be like, oh, look at this correlation here and there and there. But if yeah. you can't convey that into easy takeaways, it doesn't matter. And for us right now, that's one of our missions is that learning a lot of pulling a lot of data from, you know, different leaks that we're working with and different teams and then pulling that data, building essentially model and knowing how to educate people in a very, in a very easy term. Like at Strive, we're essentially creating data sets that have never been collected before. You know, we never had a data, muscle data readily available like this ever before. And we're the first one to do it effectively and easy and, you know, different deployments in the military environment or industrial or sports. And our goal right now is to like learn from this data and then flip the script onto the customer and be like, hey, the way you move, we've seen a lot of these things happen and this is what you should be considering. So starting education, because the education, if we can't tell you, you know, I tell people, a 14 year old should pick up Strive and know what to do. And that's as simple as literally providing a sentence like, hey, Chase, today you were doing this, keep this in mind next time. And then tomorrow before you start the practice, remind you of that one sentence, like this is what you should be doing. So I think that's where the industry needs to go for the broader adoption, kind of that um, um, kind of changing the narrative in human performance. And that's what, um, that's what we're on a mission to do. Right, awesome, cool. And uh, so going to these last handful of questions here. So throughout your life so far and what you've done as a pro basketball player and with Building Strive, were there any pivotal moments or experiences for you that really changed your perspective on human performance and performing optimally you know, related to recovery, training, nutrition, or, you know, whatever? Running hills, running up the mountain in 1997 or eight, uh, in Montenegro, uh, realizing that there needs to be a way to monitor this, like, this, is, this <laughs> right. is not productive. Um, I think that was definitely, uh, that was kind of when I shifted my mind from sir, yes, sir, to wait a second, let me, let me think this through. And next one was the research, kind of the research that I conducted at the University of Rhode Island and the development kind of in early uh, EMG monitor that I built uh, back in 2006. So I think those were two critical points. Over the last five years, Chase, I mean, perpetually challenged 
perpetually inspired by the customers, the way they use the product, by opportunities, things we're learning. Even for me, you know, biomedical engineering education and electrical engineering, and I, I totally have an understanding of how muscles work and what they do. But now that we're collecting data in the field, in the real world, now it's like, all of a sudden, wait a second. Yes, that makes sense. And I agree that that's what the book says, but check this out. And now with the introduction of like, you know, now we're talking about a regular squat versus a transformer bar, you know, by Kabuki strength monitoring that versus the tsunami bar, the vibrations of the tsunami bar. Now we're starting to look into like, how is that, how are muscles responding during the training with different, um, different equipment? And, and it's extremely fascinating. And to be honest with you, the, the core beliefs is consistent day in, day out, but the way I look at human performance and optimization has been, I don't want to say changing, but evolving on a regular scale uh, right now. Yeah. 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 It's exciting. Um, yeah. On your Twitter, on your Twitter bio, uh, you write that you're a thalassophile. Can you expand on that and what that <laughs> means a little? <laughs> yeah. Lover of the sea, I believe okay. is the official Google translation, but um, it's the only place, man, where if when I swim, I don't have my phone with me. You can email me, text me, call me. I'm by myself. And then just with being able to, you know, sail and just be in the water and have no service. Um, I know what I'm saying is aligning to a, uh, with the assumptions that I'm a massive introvert who doesn't like people. But in reality, I think with the business of life and every, you know, 10,000 decisions on a daily basis, I love being able to just be in the water, uh, in the water, on the water, under the water, whatever it is, whether it's uh, sailing or swimming and just kind of unplug. So uh, I don't think you'll see me living in the mountains anytime soon. While I do love the mountains, uh, yeah. as you know, from my earlier stories, they have uh, confusing memories. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So, yeah, yeah. They can no, do this to me on the water. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I totally get it. I would describe my dad in kind of a, a similar similar way with that love of the water and love of the water and kind of everyone I think needs has that that sort of escape for them, whether it is the ocean or the mountains or Absolutely. reading a book outside or whatever the yeah. case may be. Exactly. Having lived in Rhode Island, uh, kind of growing growing up in the mountains and then moving to Rhode Island and having the ocean and you know a lot of sailing and swimming for a good chunk of the year. I think that's kind of what developed that, uh, that love, uh, ocean state made me a lover of the sea. So, yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Let's say we meet again on the street in five years. What would you want to be telling me they've accomplished or created since this conversation personally or professionally? <laughs> <laughs> I think professionally that, that we enabled effective efficiency analysis, human performance efficiency analysis through muscle monitoring. Um, I think, again, we are, we are learning. Um, I think we are um, running ahead of others. I think we're in a really good position to uh, accelerate our growth in coming months. Um, so nailing down the muscle value proposition and providing a very intuitive data from coaches to military personnel to industrial to consumer that's that's my goal from a professional perspective like narrowing down this data and making it intuitive for for others 
And then from a personal man, just to be a good human, to be a good father, that my kids were excited to hang out with me. Um, I still, <laughs> yeah. I still, I still maintain the cool dad effect, but um, you know, with with work, with everything that's going on, it's always it's always easy to deprioritize uh, deprioritize that environment, the the family and everything. But um, that I didn't that I didn't lose track of things that matter. Yeah. I made my fair share of mistakes, but um, I'm hopeful that it can be better down the road. Yeah. And I didn't, actually didn't realize you, you had kids. So um, how old are they? Yeah, six and three. Okay. Two boys. Uh, okay. Yeah, we just, we just, uh, a very painful thing at, at the home is that uh, they develop love for baseball, which is extremely confusing. Not just that I didn't watch baseball, I didn't talk about baseball, I didn't play baseball, but one of the other kids, uh, babysitter's sons, he plays baseball and now they're with baseball. But we finally introduced the basketball. The older one is very much, you know, we just got a basketball hoop and he's playing basketball. So it's exciting to see, um, it's exciting to see him picking stuff up, even the younger one. So I'm working slowly, you know, it's uh, the process. This is a marathon, not a sprint. So yeah. they can they can hit the ball and pitch and all that stuff, but We'll, we'll, we'll switch to basketball soon enough. <laughs> right. Right. Hopefully, hopefully they get the, the tall genes too. Yeah. It's a, they're, they're, uh, they're pretty crazy on the whole chart. Um, uh, doctor checkups, they're both 97% oh, yeah. plus. So I'm, I'm a little nervous, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> if you're, if you're not, if you're over six, five, you better be in the NBA. That's why I tell people. Cause life is, you know, when you're six, five, six, six, life is not convenient from airplanes to cars and everything. So <laughs> I hope. I hope they get to leverage the height properly. Yeah, right, right. Um, what does your daily routine look like? Oh, wake up in the morning. You know, I usually do a workout in the morning, work. Uh, I don't think there's a routine at work. One day, I'm a, one day I'm the CEO. The next day, I'm the engineer. The next day, I'm focus on manufacturing material science. So I don't think there's a normal day at Strive uh, at this point yet. Um, after usually, you know, I, I like to take time to have dinner. Uh, I can skip breakfast, lunch, not drink water all day, but usually dinner time <laughs> is when I- um, That's not good. You know, it's uh, nutrition. I'm still wrapping my head around nutrition. Uh, you know, I can talk to you all day about uh, lifting and recovery and, you know, workout methods, but I'm embarrassingly bad at understanding nutrition and prioritizing nutrition. And I, I get yelled at for it a lot, <laughs> but be, being honest. Um, yeah. And then usually, you know, slower night, you know, when I can play with kids, play with kids when, or just getting stuff around the house pre and some nights just work. You know, yeah. Unfortunately, Fortunately and unfortunately, you know, um, unlike my previous job, this job does not stop when I go home uh, to eat. It usually right. carries with me. So, and and I'm fine. That's a that's a thing you have to be prepared for when you start a company. So yeah, definitely. and I enjoy it. And, you know, some some nights it's uh, brain brain kicks into hyperdrive, and next thing you know, it's morning. So it's <laughs> uh, it's fun. Yeah, 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 for sure. So. As is the name of the podcast, the Driving Force podcast, what do you think has been your driving force throughout your life? 
That's a good question. I don't think I have a throughout my life. Um, I think I have a two distinct parts of my life. Uh, I think in Montenegro, while I was in Montenegro, I just wanted to be, I wanted to do good at what I do. It was a very kind of old fashioned black and white, like if you're doing school, be, a, be good at school. If you're playing basketball, be good at basketball. I just, I, I was more, to a certain way, I was just, I just wanted to deliver, like, if you're doing it, do it well. And that's mm-hmm. what always, that was the, that was the framework. I think since I moved to US, it, it became a little bit more complicated. I think driving force right now is that I'm a, I'm a kid from Montenegro who won a green card on a lottery, moved to US, got a chance to start a company and is doing some pretty cool things with top best athletes in the world, best military personnel in the world. So I think there's that lo- <clears throat> excuse me, there's a little bit chip of uh, being an immigrant kid now. That's that's very real. And I think living in this society, you know, to this I'm every day I'm fully aware that I'm I I grew up, you know, five, six thousand miles away. So really not taking many things for granted and just reminding myself that, you know, my, my parents sacrificed a lot to be here. You know, my mom was a math professor. My dad was a lawyer. When they moved to us, they worked in a factory. So uh, on some days when things are tough, it's quitting is just not an option uh, because of that. And um, I think that that mindset of, you got a chance to live in US. I live in Seattle. Um, make it count. Um, mm-hmm. I take that very seriously. It's yeah. less so like, oh, do good because you have to do good. And it's more like it's more like make it count. Right. And that's to 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 a fault sometimes, but um, it's it's what makes tough days bearable. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah. Yeah, no, I I that definitely makes sense. Awesome. And then lastly here, before I wrap up, what parting words of wisdom would you like to leave the aspiring entrepreneur listening? (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I didn't, um, I think what I wish I did better, I wish I was more leveled in more, more leveled on the good days and more leveled on the bad days as a, as a Mediterranean, I grew up. I grew up a Mediterranean. You know, everybody's very passionate. You know, everything is amplified. Good days are the best things in the world. Bad days are the worst things. You know, I can tell you, like, oh, you got to work hard. Then there are going to be a lot of rejections and things. And like, yes, all those things are good. But I think what would what would made me what would made early days even better is if I was able to balance the the emotional roller coaster because startup is an emotional roller coaster. Like one day you're crashing and burning, the next day you're 38,000 feet high. And I think in between is when the stories developed and um, just be leveled. You know, mm-hmm. if things look crappy today, they'll be fine tomorrow somehow. <laughs> Again, this might be optimist talking, but um, yeah, just manage your own expectations and know that at the end of the day, you know, we're, we're not a military personnel. Our lives are not 
decisions are not life or death based. Um, and I think as I had a friend who 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 worked with me and he worked on a nuclear submarine, uh, taking care of the rea nuclear reactor. And I was comes like, oh, I need help with this. And he's like, calm down. Is there a nuclear reactor here? No, then <laughs> it's fine. We can figure it out. And I think that's really stuck with me that, mm -hmm. you know, just just balance yourself. You'll your cardiovascular system and adrenal glands will thank you for it in the long run. Right. <laughs> right. So. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Awesome. That's a great place to end. Nicola, thanks again for coming on the show. Cool. This is great. Chase, thanks for having me, man. This was awesome. Uh, where can people go to find you online? Yeah. So uh, Um My name, uh, I'm also on Twitter, uh, LinkedIn. Happy to connect with anybody, chat more. If I'm always excited when people like when people get excited about human performance, I get excited too. So I can chat with you all day long about uh, ones and zeros of uh, um, muscles, et cetera. So happy to connect. Awesome. And y'all call us to visit my website, chaserosa.com and follow me on Instagram at chaserosa4 for updates on new episodes. Thanks everyone who's listening and see you next time.